Good morning. Good to see you today. My name is Dave. If we haven't met already, I am one of the pastors here, and it's great to be uh, with you this morning. We're continuing a sermon series we've launched going through the book of Philippians, and we're talking about the search for joy. And I think this is such a significant subject because every human heart is longing for joy. Every single human heart is longing to have this deep inner peace and security and satisfaction and sense that things are going to be all right no matter what is happening to us, no matter what is happening in the world around us. And Philippians is a book about joy. It's a a letter written to this church in the ancient city of Philippi about having joy in all circumstances. It's a letter written to you and me about what it means to have joy. And what Paul says in this letter is that joy is interesting because sometimes it's found and sometimes it shows up and sometimes it comes out of places and people and situations that we wouldn't necessarily expect. And this morning, Paul is going to talk to the Philippians and to us about the joy of humble unity, about the joy that can come when uh, humility is the driving force behind unity in our lives and in our church. This deep and lasting gladness of embracing humility that empowers unity. That's what Paul's gonna talk to us about today. And so as we begin, I wanna just ask you to pause just for a minute, to stop for a second and take a look around you. Look at the people in front of you. Look at the people next to you. Look, if it's not too weird and awkward, at the people behind you. And they should be looking at the people behind them, so you just saw the backs of their heads, right? Perhaps you met a few of these folks during the turn and greet time. Perhaps they were friendly. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, But as you look around the room and you observe the different people in here, I'll let you in on a little secret. That person next to you, that person behind you, that person in front of you, they are really different from you. They probably disagree with you. I know it's crazy. But chances are they have different strengths than you have, different weaknesses, they have different political views than you, they have different love languages and conflict resolution tendencies than you have. They were raised differently than you were, which means they have different ways in which they have been wounded. They have different defense mechanisms than you have. They have different blind spots than you. And, and if you spent enough time with that person, they would probably at some point offend you. In the context of the church and, of the, relationships, and the relationships we have with each other, wouldn't you say it's true that we often offend each other, hurt each other, fail each other? Would you say that's true? Yeah, and if you're not saying yes, then you're lying and you've failed me just now, so... There you go. We fail each other, friends. We hurt each other at times. We let each other down. And then what we often do is we bail. We give up. We break up. Because we are not good at dealing with hurt or insult or difficulty or disagreement. 
A recent study shows that nearly all Americans, 95% of Americans believe that people on opposite sides of major issues demonize each other so severely that it makes finding common ground impossible. 95% of our nation believes that finding common ground is impossible because we're so used to taking sides, because we've been trained so fully in forming opinions, because we're so used to defending our perspective and amassing information and evidence and facts to support the fact that we must be right. You see, we live in a world right now that is more divided than ever, and that division is so much a part of our culture that it can sometimes even seep into the church. It can often even leak right in here between you and me, and sometimes it leaks from us out the other direction. And so Paul writes this letter to say, you should be united. Remember who you are. Never forget whose you are. Remember what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ because if you will, because if you will follow Jesus and embrace humble unity, then at the end of that road, there will be great and tremendous joy. There's joy in this thing. You will find joy in this place you never imagined or dreamed that you would. Philippians chapter two, Paul is gonna talk about this very thing With the Philippians and with us, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 today. And here's how he begins as he tackles this subject of humility-driven unity where we find joy. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. You see, right away, Paul wants to remind them of what they have been given. And he does this by essentially asking a series of rhetorical questions. A lot of scholars believe that this opening section is just a series of questions that he's asking rhetorically to the church at Philippi. Questions uh, for which the answer is yes. Is water wet? Is fire hot? Did the Trailblazers beat the Lakers even with LeBron James in their season opener just this past week? And the answer is, heck yes. Tom? He's a big Blazer fan. You see, Paul says, let's start here. Let's start with this. Let's begin with the gospel. That's where he begins. Let's start with just a few of the things that God has freely given to you and me in Christ. You see, Paul doesn't start with, hey, let's talk about unity and humility and joy, and you guys just need to be better. Paul doesn't start with a be better talk. You see, the world often starts with be better. We get be better all over the place. We get be better from our employers. We get be better from our wives. We get be better from our husbands. We get be better from our kids and our parents. The world is always telling us be better, do a little more. You can improve. Paul doesn't start there. He starts with the gospel. He starts with let's remember what God has done for you. And he asks some questions. Are you encouraged because you have been bought with the price and belong to Jesus and are no longer enslaved to sin? 
Does that reality encourage you, lift you up, and build you up in this world? That sin is no longer ruling and master over your life and eternity? Does that encourage you? Are you comforted, comforted, he asked, by the fact that he loves you, that God loves you with an everlasting and unconditional love that knows no bounds? Has the Holy Spirit, who is in each of you and bears witness to that fact that you are children of God, has that spirit that has caused sweet fellowship between you and God and you and others, does that lift you up? Does that bring you gladness and joy and security? Have your hearts been made tender and compassionate, having been made new through the gospel? See, Paul's asking these questions. He's saying, do you remember what God has offered you for free through no merit or earning of your own? See, Paul does not start with rules. He does not start, start with morality. He does not start by saying, if you're good enough, then God will receive you. He doesn't say, you really need to start working a little harder, church. Why? Because Paul knows this. Paul knows this important and essential truth. Humble unity is not something we can create on our own. Humble unity is not something we can create on our own through human effort. It's something that grows out of the soil of the gospel in your life. Humble unity grows out of the soil of the gospel. You know, in the Bible, there are two different kinds of statements. There are indicatives. Indicatives run all throughout the scriptures. They are statements of fact. You are sitting down. Fact. I am preaching a sermon, fact. It will end at some point, fact. Maybe a long time from now, we don't know, but. Statements of fact, but then there are also imperatives. There are indicatives, facts, but then there are imperatives, which are commands. Stand up, that's an imperative, don't actually do it. Listen to what I'm saying, I want you to do that. No matter how long this goes, don't leave early. Those are commands, right? And we have lots of indicatives in the Bible, but we also have lots of imperatives, lots of things that the scriptures command us to do. Love one another. Forgive each other. Serve the poor, so on and so forth. But the imperatives in the Bible are never separated from indicatives. This is a wonderful thing. When God tells us to do something, when he gives us a command, there is always a fact, there is always a truth behind it and that's driving it. We are greatly loved by God. Fact, truth. Therefore, we love one another. It's indicative and drives imperative, or imperative and drives indicative. We have been forgiven much. We have been greatly forgiven we have been forgiven enormously and beyond comprehension. Therefore, we forgive much. You know, I think about how much I've sinned in just this last week. I've sinned a lot more than you think I have. I really have. And you've sinned more than I think you have because I really think good of you, you know. Um, and you let me down. Uh, I think about how much God has forgiven me, not just in this past week, but over my entire lifetime. 
And how that forgiveness empowers me to forgive others, even others who have hurt me deeply, even those who have hurt me time and time and time again. You see, left to my own strength, I have a real hard time forgiving people. But when I remember the extent to which God has forgiven me, all of a sudden I'm empowered and transformed to be an enormous and massive forgiver of others. This passage that we're reading says, remember what God has done for you. Do you remember what God has done for you? Is it fresh on your mind and heart? We have been united to God in Christ. That's the indicative. That's the fact. We have been united to God, to the Lord of heaven and earth, to the creator of all things. We have been united to God in Christ. Therefore, be united to one another. You've been united to God through no work or energy or effort of your own. Therefore, be united to one another, even when the one another is a little difficult. And friends, there's a certain amount of joy that you experience in your life when you just get the indicatives, when you just get the facts, when you just get the truths of the gospel. When you get those and you realize those and you receive those and you believe those, there will be some joy. There will be some, some deep and beyond circumstances peace in your life. When you kind of believe on and, and realize that God loves you, that creates joy in your life. That creates peace and security and safety and value. When you realize that God has forgiven me, there's joy. When you realize and understand and believe the fact that God is sovereign and that he is in control and that he's working all things for his glory and for the good of those who love him in this world, that this isn't just a random world that we live in, that God actually has a plan. There's peace in that. There's hope in that. There is joy deep in that truth. But if you stop there, if you stop with just the indicatives, you miss the fullness of joy because the fullness of joy comes when we actually live out of those facts, when those truths impact the way we live and the lives that we, that we lead. When the truths of the gospel transform who we are and how we live, there is deeper joy. Let me give you an illustration. Last week, Amy and I went out of town um, for the weekend to Vancouver. We'd never been to Vancouver, BC. We went, we were meeting some old friends. I think I mentioned it a few weeks ago that we were gonna go and we were really looking forward to it. These are friends of ours from our early 20s. We hadn't seen them in a few years. We were leaving our kids behind. I love our kids, but I love leaving them behind. It was gonna be a great, great weekend. But if you're like us, getting ready, prepping for that trip is no small feat. The amount of things you have to get ready and organize and plan and prepare, are, it's a real long list. There's kids to take care of and make sure they're all set and school schedules and sports schedules. And then there's some housework to do, to getting ready for the folks who are gonna be there at your house. And there's you know, rides to line up and then there's packing and then there's dogs that need to be cared for. There's all these, this long list of things that just create stress and anxiety. And by the time we got to the night before the trip, Amy and I were both pretty tired and just a little bit feisty. And an argument broke out. It never happened to you before, I'm sure. But an argument actually broke out between us and it didn't go well. Like it didn't like resolve quickly. It was one of those arguments where she said something and I said something and she said something and it went back and forth for a little while. And finally, we just weren't speaking to each other. And it was one of those moments where, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where I was like, I'm not apologizing first. You know, this was her. I was just like, I'm just kind of dug in. And so we kind of, we ended the night civil, 
but not getting along and went to bed and like slept on it. I'm confessing that to you. We should have made up before we went to sleep. We didn't. We went to sleep. We woke up the next morning and things were still a little tense. We were still a little bit like kind of off. We get all packed. We get everything set. We're in the car. Now we're driving to the airport. We still aren't talking. We're on this weekend away with no children to meet our friends. And we're driving to the airport and we're not even speaking to each other. And I'm still kind of in this place where I'm going, you know what, she's going to pull it. I'm not seeing, I'll just outlast her here. And about halfway to the airport, I started realizing, like, this is a losing strategy. Like, you got to rethink this deal because I think if we end up in Vancouver still not talking, this isn't going to go well for anyone. So at one point, I just turned to her and said, okay, are we going to hash this thing out and get back on the same page and enjoy each other now or, and just do it now and get it over with or what? And then she said, well, it depends on what you have to say. <laughs> There's several women in the last service who said that was their favorite part of the whole sermon, which concerned me. Um, they're taking notes. What exactly? How did she say that? Um, but then, of course, we, we hashed it out and shared our feelings, and you said this, and you said this, and this hurt me, and we forgive each other, and then we made up. And there was this sense of joy. Like, you know how it feels when you're not getting along with someone you care about, someone you love? your spouse, and that just creates anxiety and burden. But then once there's unity and there's reconciliation and there's grace and there's forgiveness, then there's just like, and we make up and all the joy and excitement of this trip comes flooding back in. So that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, if you will do the hard work of leaning into humility and unity at the end of that road is tremendous joy and sometimes the harder the road the greater the joy and he also says that joy that you feel and that you'll experience when you lean into unity with one another it'll also it won't just impact you it'll bleed out onto those around you this is why he says to the church at philippi he says you guys you need to come back together and in humility be united make my joy complete if you guys could sort of work this out and figure out how to be united once more, then my joy will be complete. I'll find joy in that. You see, it's like a spiritual father looking at his spiritual children. He's saying, when you have unity, I even get some of that joy. It's like that moment when your kids are fighting and there's no peace in the house and it's actually robbing you of joy. But then at some point, by like the grace of God, a miracle happens and one of them goes over to the other one. This has only happened a few times at my house, but a couple times. And they say, I am so sorry I did that and I love you so much. And then like your son and your daughter like hug and embrace and like, I love you and I love you. And as a parent, you're like, I feel so much joy. You know, like why? Because the unity of others actually bleeds out onto us. When people we love and care about have unity, when they offer and walk in humility, we even get like the backlash of that joy. Paul says, humble unity grows out of the soil of the gospel, and it creates joy, this deep sense of gladness. Make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. And now he's defining, what does unity mean? What am I talking about here when I'm talking about being united, being together? Notice the phrase he says, being like-minded. It's the Greek verb phone. It means to think the same way. That's the te te technical definition of this word. Be like-minded. Think the same way. And I bring this up because it's important for us to understand that Paul is not talking here about doctrine. 
the Philippians don't actually have any doctrinal problems. There's not even a hint, not even an allusion to a doctrinal issue in this entire letter. Friends, what Paul is saying is we could all sign the same doctrinal statement and still not be like-minded in the way he's calling us to be like-minded. He's calling us to something beyond that. He's calling us to something more than just agreeing on facts. What he's talking about here is attitude, the posture of our hearts. He's talking about the posture of your heart as you relate to others, specifically as you relate to others who you disagree with or you're different from or you find yourself in conflict with? What's the posture of your heart? What's the attitude of your soul? And listen to what he says. First, he'll give us the wrong mindset, the wrong attitude. Then he'll give us the right attitude. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There's two phrases here. Selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is really just a generic word that means a spirit of divisiveness. A clinging to one's own agenda. Aristotle used this very word to describe politicians in his day. People who just clung to their own agenda. Even when it created divisiveness. Not something we can relate to in our world. Um, But then he goes from this generic term to this this term that has a little more depth to it. It's a Greek word that goes a little deeper. In English, it's translated vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vain conceit means technically to be glory empty. To be empty of glory. To be hungry for glory to fill you once again. To be hungry for honor. To long for respect and status and recognition. Vain conceit comes from a place where you do not feel like you are a person of importance. You don't feel significant. You, don't f- you feel like you have to prove yourself. You have to prove that you matter, that you're worth something. You are glory hungry. You're empty of glory. You're hungry for glory. You're hungry for value. The other night, a buddy of mine was actually at the Blazers game um, with a friend, and he was telling me uh, that after the game, you know, we had won. We beat L.A. for the 18th straight time. We were dominating those guys. It's a wonderful, good, godly, Jesus makes smiles on it thing. Um, And uh, after the game, there's a lot of Laker fans there because you might know this. It was LeBron James' first game as a Laker, and so a lot of Laker fans came. And then we beat them. And so after the game, there's all these people in Laker jerseys who are kind of in a bad mood. And everyone was sort of filing out of the stadium, trying to get out, and they were all kind of moving towards this escalator. And there's not really a line because it's just a mass and people are just sort of funneling in. And my buddy and his friend were moving towards the escalator and he said that this guy in the Laker jersey, who obviously wasn't in a good mood, got the impression that they were trying to cut in front of him. And so all of a sudden, he just pushes my buddy's friend and said, quit trying to cut. Why are you trying to cut in front of me? Right? Like, got really, really bent out of shape over this whole thing. You see, this is somebody who's operating from a place of vain conceit. They're glory empty. They are hungry for honor and respect. They don't feel they have it. They need to grasp it. This is somebody whose value and worth is so fragile that they're threatened by the possibility that someone might cut in front of them in line. 
You see, that someone might get on the escalator before them, that offends them to the very core. Why? Because they are hungry for recognition. They need to be validated and they fly off the handle at such a little thing. I know none of you in here can relate to such nonsense. And friends, the reason Paul says, don't be divisive, don't be quarrelsome, don't fight and argue and puff your chest up in order to prove yourself. The reason you don't have to fight for recognition and value and status and honor is why? Because you're already proven. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit because you don't have to be glory hungry because as a follower of Jesus Christ, your life should be filled to overflowing with glory. You should have complete 100% significance and value and validation in your life from God himself through Jesus Christ. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit because you don't have to because your life should be brimming with significance because of Jesus. You see, that's the reminder of Paul. He says, as you approach one another, remember who you are. Remember that you don't have to stand up for yourself. Remember that you are full and significant and satisfied. But he reminds them, and here's why. Because this is hard. Because if you're like me, sometimes you feel really full. You feel like Jesus is like reminding you that you are a son of God or you're a daughter of the king and you have such significance and value. You don't have to prove yourself and you feel confident and safe. And other times you're just not in that place. True story, just the other day I was driving in the city and I was actually, this is, again, I'm so, I'm so sorry that I'm your pastor. I was actually listening to a sermon on Philippians 2. I dialed up another pastor who preached this passage and I was kind of listening to it to take some tips. And as I'm listening to this passage preach about like, you know, humility and putting others' interests before yourself, I get to this intersection. The traffic was pretty bad. I'm at the very front and the light is red and the other cars are going and this woman gets like antsy and pulls into the intersection and stops in front of me because the traffic's backed up and she kind of went early and then the light changes. And now I have a green and she's parked right in front of me in the intersection. I can't get around. So the people in the other lane are going around her, but I'm pinned in and I can't go. And friends, the amount of anger and frustration and annoy I mean, how dare she? How dare she take, how dare she block my way, right? And, I, and I, just to be fair, like the, the, the rage that welled up in my soul lasted only about three seconds before the Holy Spirit went like, you're listening to Philippians chapter two as we speak right now. It was, <laughs> And then God said, and you're gonna be sharing that on Sunday. And I was like, oh, I know, Lord, I'm so sorry. Um, you see, we forget, we so quickly forget. We so quickly forget who we are whose we are, and how validated and significant we are in Christ. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You see, now, now Paul is talking about the attitude the gospel should create in us. He said, see, the gospel will, will kind of prevent you from operating out of selfishness and vain conceit, but it'll help you, it'll push you to, to operate in humility. And then he defines what humility is. Humility, by the way, is a word, is a simple Greek word that, that means gentle, modest, 
deferential. And we have to understand that this was not a common quality in the ancient world. In fact, outside the New Testament, this Greek word was almost never used. And whenever we find it in ancient texts, it's always used in a derogatory way. It was not positive to be humble. People despised humility. They wanted no part of being humble. Humility was only used to describe slaves. You see, this is a society, the Greco-Roman world, that said, no, you look out for number one. You go for glory. You go for honor. You go for success. You go for, ach- you go for achievement. But humility? Who would want to live and walk in humility? And the point is this, humility, friends, has always run counter to our fallen human nature. Humility is not something that comes naturally to us as fallen sinful human beings. You see, in our world, because we're influenced by the scriptures, humility is considered to be a virtue. But if you pay close attention, it actually isn't something we value in our world. Just go to any sporting event out there, some of them worse than others. People succeed, they do like the number one thing, they they score a touchdown, which is the the best thing you can do in football, right? You can kick a field goal, that's worth three, but if you get a touchdown, that's, that's the best thing you can do in football. They've already won, they've already been successful, they've already gotten the glory, and what do people do? They pile on the glory with a touchdown dance or some taunting move, right? Look at me, aren't I amazing? You see, that's vain glory, that's glory hunger, right? And I appreciate a good touchdown celebration just like the rest of you but it points to something larger in our culture that humility isn't actually something we value and here's the question I'll have for you this morning here's what I want you to consider do you understand how radical humility is do you understand the radical call of Paul on the church in this passage? He is not saying live your lives mostly about self-interest and then sprinkle a little humility on top. Live your life mostly, for the most part, in a way that's all about you and then every now and then kind of look to the interests of others. No, that is not what he's saying at all. He's calling us to something far more significant. And we realize how how countercultural it is when we think about our world being humble. When we think about what it would look like if humility really was valued, then we realize how far from the mark we actually are. And imagine, for a moment, a humble world. I mean, what if the entire world really was humble? Where every nation was actually looking out for the interests of other nations, just one ambassador to another. Hey, just wanted to make sure you guys are good. Is there anything we can do for you? Stimulate your economy. What do you need? Imagine a world where politicians didn't give a rip about their own egos, but they were instead more concerned about doing what was best for the people, even the people on the other side of the aisle. Imagine a world where your boss or supervisor or coworkers were not just concerned for themselves, but for you, how you were doing. Imagine a humble Portland where people truly looked out for their neighbors, where people were always asking, what do you think? What's your perspective? What do you care about? Now imagine a humble church where the men and women in it were not solely looking for what they could get out of church, but what they could pour into 
the family of God. Where love would abound because everyone was proactive in seeking ways to bless other people. Where we could challenge and correct one another in patience and gentleness and we could share resources with those who were in need. Imagine a church that is patient with all the ups and downs and difficulties and struggles that come with people living in tight community together. Imagine a church where Jesus was boldly proclaimed, where he was followed fervently, he was spoken about often, but without pretension and without arrogance. Now, now here's the truth. You can't have any of that if you don't imagine a humble you. So what's a humble you? What does humility really look like in the life of a human being? Well, first of all, let's be clear that humility is not thinking less of self. It's thinking of self less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not self-neglect. Look at the passage. Paul doesn't say, hate yourself, don't have any interests, don't have any goals, don't have any needs. He does not say that. You see, the Bible is very nuanced in the way it speaks of things. Sometimes we make these big, broad, sweeping statements about what the Bible has to say, but often, most often, the scriptures hold things in tension. You see, God wants you to be healthy. It's all over the scriptures. God wants you to be self-aware. He wants you to be aware of yourself, aware of your own needs and desires and even wants. God wants you to have healthy boundaries in your life. This is not a passage about throwing away all your boundaries for self-care. You know, one thing we see in Jesus, by the way, our mission statement around here is becoming like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus embodies everything we talk about here including humility. He's the perfect picture of humility. And one of the things we see in Jesus is that sometimes he retreated. Sometimes he moved away from people. Sometimes he moved away from people who needed something or wanted something from him. He moved away from the crowds to rest and to pray. Humility, looking out for the interests of others, does not mean you never look out for your interests But Paul is warning against something here. He's warning us against this temptation to constantly and consistently orient our lives in the big and little decisions around what is best for me. You see, it's my tendency and maybe yours to move towards what is best for me. What is best for me? You know what that's called? That's called moving towards making me the Lord of my life. What is best for me? I move into the worship center and I'm looking for a seat and all I can think is, what seat is best for me? And so I sit on the aisle and then someone comes down and they want to join my row. But instead of sliding in, I really want the aisle. So what do I do? I just sort of move and I make them squeeze past. And some of you are feeling bad right now and I hope you are. (laughs) But Paul is warning us and he says, Just be careful that in all the little ways throughout your life, and then all of a sudden in these big ways, your whole life really becomes, what is best for me? What is easiest for me? What is most convenient for me in my life? You see, there's this selfish motive behind 
our actions, and sometimes it comes out sideways, sometimes it's cloaked, sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes even when you do things for others, right? Even when on the surface it looks like you're looking out for the interest of others, even when you appear to be serving other people, there's this hidden motive that lies underneath. Now I'll get some recognition. And all of a sudden, even your acts of service become, what is best for me? Humility is not neglect. Humility is also not self-deprecation. Jesus never walked around, by the way, self-deprecating. He never walked around saying like, no, that's not true. I mean, you never hear Jesus saying, no, 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 guys, I'm not really God. Jesus, you're Messiah. Stop, stop, stop it. You guys are too much. There are other Messiahs that are just as, if not more messiah than me. He doesn't say that. He never said that. Why? Because humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not self-deprecation. Actually, true humility is thinking rightly of yourself. It's just accepting who you truly are, which is why when Jesus was asked, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the living God? He doesn't say, well, maybe I don't want to be arrogant about it. He says, absolutely. And that's humility. You see, true humility can acknowledge when you fail, when you aren't good at something, and when you succeed and you are good at something. Humility and confidence go strangely together, right? See, because humility is birthed out of feeling confident and whole and fulfilled. Humility is not self-deprecation. You see, this is, self-deprecating is just another way of being self-centered. People who are always down on themselves, and we get confused in our world, like, that person is really, really down on themselves. They are so humble. That's not humility, friends. Because when you're down on yourself, your focus is still where? On yourself. It's just pride in a different package. Some people are prideful about their successes. Some people are prideful about their failures. You see, self-deprecation is really just a hidden form of pride, of a way of being focused on me. Here's another thing. Humility does not mean that you don't share the truth. This is a concern I have about the church. This one's tough. Humility doesn't mean I don't say anything ever. Humility does not mean because I'm so worried about appearing arrogant or opinionated that I just avoid disagreement or conflict or challenge. It's not humility. Here's a question. Are you humble enough to share something hard with someone? You see, a lot of times we say, I don't want to say anything because I just love them too much. No. You probably just love yourself too much. And you know saying something would be damaging to you. You wouldn't get as much approval and because you are operating out of vainglory and you desperately need that approval to fill your soul, you choose avoidance. That's how it works with me, you know. Oh, I don't want to rock the boat. Well, it's my boat that I'm actually concerned about rocking. It's, it's my approval. It's my sort of opinion they have of me that I'm worried about getting sort of messed up. You see, humility is not thinking less of self. It's thinking of self 
less. And again, it comes from the health of the gospel. It flows out of having your needs and desires and value met by Jesus. See, humility flows out of the gospel so well because humility is being so full and healthy in Jesus that you now have the ability to forget about yourself. Let me illustrate it for you this way. I played basketball uh, I'm in college. The most common injury in basketball is a sprained ankle. Like, you play basketball with guys, they sprain their ankles all the time. Like, guys are wearing casts and tape and all sorts of things because when you play basketball enough, eventually you roll your ankle. And I had a chronic uh, right ankle that I would sprain all the time. And here's the thing about your ankles. When they're healthy, you never think about them, Right? You can run and jump and twist and climb and leap and do all sorts of stuff and never once will you ever be thinking about how are my ankles. But as soon as you hurt your ankle, it's the only thing you can think about. As soon as you sprain your ankle, there's actually like no way to stop thinking about your ankle. And if you're ever on crutches, like you know this because people move towards you and you're like, whoa, 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 stay away from my ankle, right? Like, don't touch me. You're so focused on it because it's not healthy. Friends, when you are hurt, when things aren't right, it's impossible to think about anything but you. But when you're healthy, and things are the way they're supposed to be, and you're full of the grace and validation and approval of Jesus in your life, now you are free to put your focus on the interests of others. Here's another thing humility does. Humility kills comparison. I was reading Tim Keller this week, and he talks about this, and, and I uh, found this quote, and I read it, and this one, just, this one just cuts a little bit. Here's what Keller says. We say that people are proud of being rich, or proud of being clever, or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer, or cleverer, or better-looking than others, If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. You see, humility says my identity is so firmly established in what God thinks of me that I don't have to be better than you to feel good about me. I can enjoy winning, but I don't have to win. I can enjoy being better, but I don't have to be better to feel secure about myself. Can I be honest and say this has been a place of struggle for me in my life? I'm a very competitive person. I really like to win. When I coach my daughter's girls' softball team, I always huddle the girls up and I say, all right, girls, they say, if you had fun, you won. And I have fun when I win, so let's kick their butt. Ready? Here we go. You know, like, 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 I like to win. And in my younger years, it was bad. And I had to really work on this because if I won, then I felt good about myself. I felt full. I felt validated. I felt like my identity was intact. But if I would lose, even a game of pickup basketball over lunch, I would be low and depressed and sad as if something was stolen from my soul. See, that's not humility, that's vainglory. That's I need this thing to fill me up because I'm not filled up by Christ. And I'm happy to tell you, friends, I think I'm improving. Like, you, never know, you ever have this happen to you? You're like, I think God is growing me. 
That's, a, that's an amazing feeling. And, and then sometimes you go backwards a little bit, but overall, I mean, I think God is growing me. Some of you know that I love to play disc golf. And I've been playing a lot of disc golf. You might laugh, but it's a lot of fun. And you throw Frisbees and you try and make them in these baskets. And it's, it's really great. And um, I started playing with Pastor Nick. And you also know that I've been beating Pastor Nick pretty handily, dominating him really. In all humility, I share that with you. Um, and it just feels good to beat the youngster, you know. But uh, the other day we went out and played. And Nick beat me for the very first time. Don't clap. Don't clap for that. <laughs> Is he in here? You in here, Pastor Nick? Oh, he's skipping church, see? Don't clap for that guy. He's a church skipper. Um, he beat me in disc golf. And I only cried for like a couple hours, which is a huge improvement. No, no, it was one of those moments where I was like, I was actually happy for him. Now, Nick is a humble guy, so it's easy to be happy for him. But I actually went home like full of joy that he had won. I was... I was rejoicing in his joy. And I thought, man, Jesus, I'm either losing my edge or you're doing something great in my soul, you know, little by little. It's a good thing. He has the, Nick currently has the trophy. So Paul is talking here about humility, about how the, the humility empowers us. The gospel empowers us to have humility. The gospel empowers us to think less about ourselves because we know that God is thinking about us. And then in verse five, Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. There's that word again, mindset. Have the same attitude, the same heart posture as Christ Jesus. And in these next verses, they're very important because scholars believe they were an early hymn. Perhaps a poem, perhaps a creed, but these were words that the early church would say and say often and probably sing. People would sing these words to implant them on their brains. And here's the point. Paul is showing us something very significant here. He's saying, you can't actually become humble by trying harder to be humble. He's saying, if you want to have this humility that I'm talking about, this humility that leads to unity, you can't actually attain it by just trying hard to be humble. And I bring this up because some of you are going to try this. You're going to go home and you're going to try really hard this week to be humble. And then one of two things is going to happen. Most likely you'll fail and then you'll get depressed and you'll think a lot about what a bad person you are, which only leads to more focus on yourself. Or you'll succeed. You'll have some success. You'll do the dishes for your wife or make the bed for your husband and you'll think, I'm doing it. I'm getting humble. Aren't I rad and amazing and awesome? And then you'll realize all of a sudden that it's all come crumbling down. Everything's gone south. So how do we become humble? Paul says we don't focus on self. We become humble by focusing on Jesus. And listen to what this hymn says. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, Jesus teaches us the downward mobility of humility. What Jesus shows us here is that the path of humility is not up and to the right. The path of humility is down, 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 which is why most people want nothing to do with it. 
This is called the downward move of Jesus. He goes down from heaven to earth. He goes down from just being a human to being rejected. He goes down even into the grave, down even into death. Jesus comes and he says, you know what humility looks like? It looks like this, going down, down, down. And he gives up his status and he gives up his privilege and he gives up his rights. You see, a lot of people in our culture, friends, are catching on to this idea. They're starting to understand that just amassing more and more stuff and having more and more experiences, just more and more happiness does not lead to happiness. More and more happiness leads to emptiness. And so people are starting to figure this out in our culture. And they're catching on to this idea of using their status for other people. I'm going to use my status to benefit others. I'm gonna look out for the interests of others. I'm gonna use my financial status for the interests of others. I'm gonna use my political status for the interests of others. I'm gonna use my status at work or at school or even at church for the interests of other people. But friends, that's not the message of Jesus here. The message of Jesus isn't, hey, Whatever status or privilege or position you've been given, use a little bit of that for other people. Jesus wasn't just willing to use his status. His call here is for us to lose our status. Did I tell you that humility is a radical call? This is not, I'll use a little bit of my privilege and power and position for others. This is, I'm willing to give it all away. I'm willing to walk the same path that Jesus walked and go down, down, down. You see, we want to dabble in humility. We want to look to the interests of others until the cost and sacrifice begin to get too high. Not Jesus. It's not the example he was to us. It's not the path he calls us to walk. He goes down, down, down. But then listen. God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's a question. Can you be humble and want to be great? Can you be humble and at the same time long and desire to be Great. Can you be humble and long to be exalted by God? Yeah, you can. Jesus was. You see, Jesus here doesn't deny greatness, he redefines it. Jesus here says, the way up is down. You want to be great in the eyes of God? Then walk this path of humility. Walk this path with me that goes down, down, down. Look to the interests of others, not yourself. Pour your life out. Carry your cross. Go down with me. And then at some point, you will be great. And you will be exalted. And you will be lifted up. And God will say, you were amazing for the kingdom. You see, the way to greatness, according to Jesus, is down. I heard a story this week about a young man who went into a little British town to climb a mountain. It was right behind the town, and all the people of the town said, hey, buddy, this is higher than you think. The weather is worse than you think. This is a much more difficult climb than you're prepared for. But he was so 
overconfident. And he went up with no appropriate gear. He thought he knew what he was doing. He walked out of the village one morning to go up this mountain with his head held high. But then several hours later, he came back crushed, defeated. He hadn't even gotten halfway up. And there was an old lady who saw him come back into town, and she turned to him and she said, Son, if you'd gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way you went up. And friends, that's the path of humility. That's the life that Jesus is asking us to live. And you know, by the way, where we live into humility. You know where we move into this passage every single week at these tables. We come to this table and we say exactly like Paul at the end of this statement. We come to these tables and we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. We come to this table and once again we say, God, crucify that thing in me that wants to make my life all about me, all about my own interests. Crucify that that part of me that wants to say, Dave is Lord. Kill that part of me, Lord, and be Lord of my life. May the gospel, may the, the soil of the gospel infect my heart and soul so that out of it can grow humility and then unity and then tremendous joy and greatness for your kingdom. You see, that's what this table is all about. It's about this declaration. Jesus Christ is Lord, not me. And you know what it takes to make that declaration? Humility. Humility. See, if you come to God and you say, God, I've been doing pretty good. I'm reading my Bible every day. I've served the homeless and the poor, and I did this and that, and I think I'm working my way up the ladder. God says, that's not how it works in my kingdom. When you come to God and you say, God, I cannot make it on my own. I cannot get there. I cannot rule and run my own life. I no longer want to be Lord. He says, ah, humility, come on in. The kingdom is just for you. Blessed are the meek. You see, we come to these tables and we take this meal and it's a way of saying, Lord, I'm willing to walk with you. I'm willing to let you call the shots in my life. I'm willing to follow your path. I'm willing to go down, down, down because I want to be great, but not great in my own eyes and not great in the world's eyes. I want to be great in your eyes. I want to be great for your kingdom. And so I'll walk down and I will carry my cross and I will follow you. See, that's what we say when we come to these tables. That's what we say with this bread and with this cup. Jesus, you are Lord, and I will follow you. You will call the shots in my life. Let's walk down so that we can walk up. So this morning, I invite you to come to the table near you and make that declaration again. Maybe for the first time today, Jesus, you're Lord. I want you to call the shots in my life. I'm tired of trying to climb up by myself and exalt myself. I'm, tr- I'm tired of trying to fill the glory void in my soul. I need you to come fill it for me. Even if it means a journey downward. Because in the end, I know that we'll be going up. So come when you're ready. Take the bread and take the cup. Receive the elements and make that declaration. Jesus Christ is my Lord. Father, this morning we thank you for your humility. 
for your humility that leads to our salvation, your humility that leads to our exaltation. Help us to be people, Lord, who cultivate the soil of the gospel in our hearts that we might be able to put the interests of others before ourselves and that your kingdom might grow in us and through us and out of us. That is our, that is our desire and that is our heart. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.